Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, if you'd like to turn there. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Well, thanks for being here this morning. Stay in Matthew chapter 4, if you would. We're going to be in those first 11 verses pretty much the whole time this morning. Uh, Again, would like to just bow our heads for a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear from the Word of God. Lord, we thank you that you have recorded these things for us. For as we look into our passage, it is quite clear that there was no one else around to witness this save our Lord Jesus Christ and the adversary, the devil. You saw fit to reveal these things to the writers of the Gospels who with with different, uh, different depth revealed to us what took place here in this wilderness. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn by looking at this and I pray that you would apply them to our hearts and to our minds, to our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as you've just heard read, we're going to be looking at one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the Bible, because here in Matthew 4, we read of a direct in-person conflict between the Son of God and the Father of lies, between Jesus Christ and Satan himself. And so by way of reminder and for context for our passage, this scene in Christ's life uh, takes place Immediately after the baptism of Christ, Jesus had come to John at the Jordan River to be baptized. And you'll recall in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, we read and heard preached. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so immediately after his baptism and this declaration of his sonship from God the Father, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And Mark's account of this same event says that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And so the words here 
express the fact that Jesus was forcefully compelled by the Spirit to depart from John the Baptist and all the crowds that went along with him and go to this place all alone. And when you are picturing this in your mind as we go along and you think of the word wilderness, it's helpful to remember that we are not imagining a a heavily wooded area. Like you might think of if someone in the United States speaks of the wilderness, you might think of a lot of trees and, and birds and animals and things like that, rivers. But we're talking about the Judean wilderness. This is a rocky desolate desert. It's an unpopulated wasteland. It barely supports any life. There's little shelter from the elements. And the only other things out there, as Mark's gospel tells us, is the wild beasts that Jesus was in the presence of. And so this is where Christ is compelled to go for this period of 40 days in which he has no food to eat. And going 40 days with no food is is no small feat, but it's not unheard of in Scripture. Moses fasted for 40 days in Exodus 34, as did Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And I point that out only as a reminder that Jesus didn't cheat in his wilderness experience and, and lean on his deity to avoid the difficulties experienced by him and the difficulties experienced by us and our humanity. There are some that suggest that, well, 40 days, it could have been 400 days, it doesn't matter, it's Jesus. But we need to remember that while that was certainly a miraculous provision from God in each of those cases, Christ truly did need to eat food as much as you or I do. Jesus was truly man, he truly needed to eat, and he truly went 40 days without eating anything. And as a result of this prolonged fast, we read in verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And I've, I've not come across a list or a blog article about the the biggest understatements in the Bible, but I imagine if someone were to create one, this would have to be towards the top. He's gone 40 days and 40 nights, and he hasn't eaten anything, and we are told clearly in the text that as a result, Jesus was hungry. And having gone so long without food, remember he's isolated in a desolate and harsh environment. Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And before we examine each of these three temptations, it's vital that we all understand what is and is not taking place here. Christ was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led by the Spirit to this place for the purpose of being tempted by Satan. God did not tempt Jesus. God never does the tempting. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So while God may send us into trials, and in this case brought Christ to the wilderness for the purpose of being tried by the temptations of the evil one, God does not entice us to sin. 
It is the world, it is the flesh, it is the devil that tempt us to pursue sin and turn from God. And since Christ is God in the flesh, any temptation to sin would necessarily have to come from outside of him. It has to come from outside of Christ, as is the case in Matthew 4. And that's an important difference between Christ and us as we have our sinful natures, even when we have been redeemed by Christ. We have enough temptation springing from up within us that if there was no outside influence at all, we would still be plenty busy fighting off the temptation to sin. And we all will face temptation in this life. And and that's why this record of Christ's temptation in the wilderness is so important. And the main thing I want us to take away this morning is that we see in our passage the great extent to which Christ can identify with his people. And we also have here an example of how to fight temptation ourselves. So we learn about Christ and we learn about ourselves. So let's examine each of these three temptations, these three attacks from the adversary one at a time. Looking first at verses 3 to 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now note how Satan is referred to as the tempter. This is not merely to describe him in this one interaction. It is a description of his nature. It is a description of his chief occupation. Satan seeks to prey upon our weaknesses and draw us away from obedience to God. And so the tempter comes to Christ at a time of physical weakness and says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And at first glance, it may seem that Satan is so wicked as to invite Christ to doubt his own sonship that was declared audibly and dramatically in public just a few verses earlier. Something like, if you are the Son of God. But the devil and his demons know exactly who Christ is, don't they? Remember that one demon that Christ interacted with? He says, we know who you are, the Son of the Most High. The devil is under no illusion of who Christ is. The if in this sentence has the grammatical function of since. Since you're the son of God, why don't you command these stones to become bread? And though he's not trying to get him to doubt his sonship, there is still a goal of inserting doubt, but not in regards to his status as God's son, but doubt in the providential care of his father. He is, in effect, saying, well, since you're the son of God, why should you be hungry and sitting in a barren land? It's the same playbook that he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. You will not surely die. God is is withholding something good from you. God is not treating you fairly. And the devil suggests something that could almost be reasonable. After all, Jesus has the need for food, a great need for food. He hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. He has the ability to create it 
miraculously. Think to the, the miracles of the loaves and the fishes. And also, there is nothing particularly sinful in being hungry. And there is nothing particularly sinful in eating to assuage our hunger. But despite the devil's craftiness, Jesus would not fall for this temptation. As the great evangelist George Whitfield preached on this verse, Jesus scorned either to distrust his righteous father on the one hand or to work a miracle to please and gratify the devil on the other. He would not be pressured to perform a miracle based on the goading of Satan, nor would he choose to rely on his own means rather than on the providence of God to meet his needs, as pressing as those needs were. And, and this all is evident in Christ's response in verse 4. He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting scripture here. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So what is the context of this verse that Jesus quotes in this instance? Well, here we have Moses speaking to the people of Israel, and he's reminding them of God's providential care during their 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses said, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel needed to learn that provision comes from God's hand alone. And during his time of hunger in the wilderness, Christ would not allow himself to be tempted into turning to his own provision instead of relying on the hand of God. So, although Satan would seek to attack him, he thwarts this attempt with the sword of truth, which is the word of God. Satan attempted to cause Christ to perform a miracle at his suggestion, which would ultimately be a distrust of God's sovereign providence and would just solve the problem on his own. Moreover, it would give Christ an out to where he would not need to experience this testing in the wilderness as man would. But he could lessen the trial by leaning on his deity, and that would do damage to the beautiful truth that Christ truly identifies with us in our pain. He truly identifies with us in our sorrows and in our trials and in our temptations. As Hebrews 4.15 declares, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our Lord would not rob us of that sweet truth merely to shut the mouth of the devil. And so with Satan's first strike being deflected by Christ, he proceeds to a second attempt. Let's look at the second temptation that is offered here, this time in verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, 
and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan takes Jesus to the holy city and he, and he sets him on a high point of the temple. And you can look in commentaries and there's lots of arguments as to whether it was this part or this part. It really doesn't matter. He's really high up and he's on the temple. How exactly this took place, we are not told. Whether this is in a vision or something else. I, I don't want to divert our attention away from the importance of this event by engaging in speculation and imagination on how it happened. The text simply doesn't tell us. What we do know is that having been repelled by the word of God wielded by Christ, Satan attempts to use Jesus' own weapon against him. Satan quotes scripture saying again that since you're the son of God, prove it. From Psalm 91, a psalm that is particularly focused on the Messiah, Satan states that God will protect his servant from harm. And so the devil takes this praise for God's protection and attempts to wield it as a temptation for Christ to throw himself off the top of the temple. So you might wonder, what exactly is the temptation here? Certainly a person that is in a, in a healthy state of mind is not tempted to do things that result in pain instead of pleasure, that result in certain death instead of possible enrichment. But the devil is no fool, whatever else he might be. The temptation offered before Christ is this. So you're the son of God. Show me. Show yourself. Show, show everybody. If God will protect his Messiah from any harm outside of his will, take him up on the offer and jump so that his angels will keep you from falling to your death. And some commentators help us by pointing out how significant the location is. The devil did not take Jesus to the top of a high cliff out in the wilderness. He took him to the temple. Perhaps this is even an element of Satan suggesting to Christ, prove it to them. Why would you take this slow, methodical method of revealing yourself to be the Son of God when in one dramatic act you could just prove it to everybody? Again, we see that the devil does not tempt us in ways that are completely contrary to our circumstances. He does not come before Jesus and try to get him to steal a boat. That is not something that he offers up before Jesus to do. But no doubt God would and did protect Jesus from danger before his time to suffer for our sins had come. We see Christ being protected in John 8 when some were about to stone him, but he was hidden from their midst and escaped. In John 10, he escaped the grasp of those who are about to seize them. I don't expect that that means that Jesus is just really, really fast. 
I think he was provided for by God in those instances. We see that even so when people want to take him by force and make him king, but he slips out from among them. But is a promise from God to be tested and tried. Are we to act recklessly to see whether or not God will do what he says he will do? Surely such an act would not be of faith, but of perverse curiosity or sinful presumption. And this is exactly how Christ assesses the situation. In verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put your Lord God to the test. And he's quoting again from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. This time from chapter 6, verse 16. And here Christ demonstrates for us how the sword of truth, like an actual sword, is both a defensive and an offensive weapon. Here Christ deflects Satan's attempt to wield the sword and he strikes a blow against his adversary at the same time. And brothers and sisters, we must learn this lesson. We must know our Bibles and we must know them well if we are to avoid being drawn off the straight and narrow path of obedience by those who would twist Scripture to their own and to our destruction. Satan desired to fight fire with fire by using the Bible, but we see here, by rightly handling the Word of God, we can deflect against attempts by Satan or by others to use it to our own hurt. So like the faithful Bereans in Acts 17, we must diligently search the Scripture to see if the things that we are being taught are so. And then and only then can we, like Christ, use the proper application of Scripture to deflect from an attack in the form of misapplied Scripture. And that is so prevalent in our own day. Satan uses Scripture, yes, but as is his way, he misapplies it. And he tries to use Psalm 91 in the exact opposite way that the author intended Rather than being a verse about trusting and having faith in the protection of God, Satan sought to replace that trust with a test, essentially destroying faith in God's protection in the process. It is one thing to trust that God will not allow any harm to befall you that is not in accordance with his will. It is quite another thing to walk out in front of traffic. Could God, the inventor of gravity, prevent Jesus from falling to his death? Yes, of course that he could do that. But we must not put our Lord God to the test. We do not jump headlong into physical or, or financial or spiritual danger and then expect God to save us from consequences before we hit the bottom. That's true from jumping off the temple. It's true from jumping into marriage with an unbeliever or going to places with people where we ought not to be or seeing how closely we can get to the fire of sin without being burned. We dare not disregard Scripture's warnings about sin and then expect God to rescue us from the consequences of our actions. We dare not neglect spiritual duties and then expect spiritual vitality to come through at the other end. To act foolishly 
and expect God to protect you from your foolishness is not faith, it is presumption. It is testing God. Satan's attack, even when armed with Scripture, is again rebuffed. And so we come to his third and his final attempt to tempt Jesus. Let's look at verses 8 to 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now once again, we are not told the manner in which Satan takes Jesus to this very high mountain, nor are we told how it was that he placed before him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. What we do know is that Satan was attempting to appeal to Christ's desire to rule and to reign, which of course is both his right and his ultimate end. He will rule and reign. The tempter shows Christ all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, their people, their wealth, their land, everything that might entice the eye and inflame the heart. And Satan uses this tactic still today with each of us, presenting some attractive bait and hiding the hook, suggesting that we pursue something we desire, but that we do so outside of God's will and outside of God's way. And notice again how Satan takes something that is in itself not inappropriate for the Messiah. We know that as Revelation 15 tells us, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We know elsewhere in Scripture that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Satan offers Christ what is rightfully his, but the temptation offered is to obtain it in a way outside of God's will, to gain the crown without the cross. This would not be the last time that Christ is presented with such a suggestion. Recall that when Peter had the audacity to rebuke Jesus after he told his disciples of his becoming betrayal and death, Peter said, this shall never happen to you. And what was Christ's response? Get behind me, Satan. So often we are enticed with the idea that we can have what we want, if only. And the answer to this, if only, is dramatically wicked. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Luke's gospel elaborates on this exchange more. He writes, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, biblical scholars argue as to whether the devil even possessed such authority over the kingdoms of the earth. After all, Jesus himself refers to Satan several times as the ruler of this world. 
Paul calls him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians. We see he's the, the prince of the power of the air. So given that this is a fallen world under the sway of the evil one, and the fact that Satan thought that this stood some chance of tempting Christ, there must be some element of truth to it. Until he is ultimately cast down by Christ, the devil does hold some temporal authority over this wicked world. Yet ultimately we know that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and that if Satan has any authority, he has the authority of a dog who is tethered to a tree in a yard. He has as much authority as God allows him to have. But Christ does not argue with Satan about who in fact holds the deed to the earth and all its kingdoms. Instead, he heads straight to the heart of the devil's wicked suggestion. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Once again, the quote from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6.13. Satan didn't mention anything about serving him. He just wanted him to worship him, but Christ knows that which we place our hearts on, that's what we worship, that is what we will serve. None deserve our allegiance in our worship other than God. We must never render to Caesar what is God's. We must never allow our hearts to be turned from God by devoting our thoughts and our desires and our trust to some lesser thing. This attempt by the devil is no more successful than the previous two attempts. Christ demonstrates that the right thing achieved the wrong way is to be rejected as quickly and as forcefully as an invitation to pursue wicked ends by wicked means. And interestingly enough, though Satan would feign to be in a position to be worshipped by Jesus, we see here that he must immediately obey the command of Christ to be gone. As soon as Christ utters the command, the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. God sent his angels, his emissaries, to minister to the needs of Christ, and no doubt not his spiritual need only, but his physical needs as well. And just like that, this dramatic scene in the life of Christ is over. But what application can the believer draw from this episode? Well, let me suggest two points of application. First, we find in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, great encouragement to persevere in our own times of trial and temptation as we have a Savior who knows what it is like to be faced with temptation. Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, we see Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. When we, through the gracious gift of the Scriptures, get to look at this conflict between Satan and Jesus, we are reminded that he knows what it is like to be hungry. He knows what it is like to be tired. He knows what it is like to be alone. 
He knows what it is like to be assailed by the devil in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. Jesus knows what it's like so we can find comfort in and from him. Moreover, we know that because Christ has defeated Satan, not only here in Matthew 4, but ultimately on the cross, that we who are in Christ can resist the devil. 1 John 3.8 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 4.4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, speaking of the spirits who are against Christ, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It is in Christ enduring temptation that we find in him a sympathetic Savior, and it is in his defeat of Satan that we have the ability to have victory over sin and Satan as well. So again, the first point of application is the encouragement that we have a Savior who knows what it is like to be tempted. Second, we see in this passage how we are to withstand temptation ourselves. When we look at how Jesus responded to the devil's attempts, we are taught how we too are to respond. We can sing out with the psalmist who writes, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Well, how does our master and commander train us for war and for battle here? Well, we see here the truth of James 4, 7 on full display. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And thankfully, we do not see here only that we should resist the devil, but we are shown how we should resist the devil. So how should we? First, obedience at any cost. Obedience at any cost. We see in our passage that Christ valued obedience to God the Father above all else. He would not allow himself to be pushed by the devil into anything that would not be of faith and obedience. Christ came to do the Father's will, and he would do it in the Father's way, not to take what was his by some other means. So remember, when you face temptation, we must hold up obedience to the law of God above all extenuating circumstances. Too, bad, too often, as Christians, we revert to some form of situational ethics and we convince ourselves that we have a right to do that which we know we ought not to do. We convince ourselves that normally this would be a sin, but given the circumstances, it's right for me to have this. I can take this my own way. I can provide for myself my way and not God's way, given the circumstances. Well, it matters not how your employer treats you. You may not steal from him, whether it be through theft or through half-hearted effort. No matter how another person has hurt you, you may not return evil for evil. No matter what you have a rightful claim to in this life, you may not take hold of it in a way that is contrary to God's word. We see in Christ unyielding obedience. 
and His is an example that we must emulate if we are to navigate the trials and temptations of life in a way that honors our Savior. Another means by which we fight is, of course, through Scripture. We cannot read Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, and fail to see that Christ deflects the attacks of Satan by using Scripture. Even when Satan attempted to use God's Word to suit his own nefarious purposes, Christ was able to refute that with yet more Scripture. And so the application is clear. We must be students of the Word. We must read. We must meditate on. We must study. We must memorize Scripture. All spiritual warfare depends on it. You must grasp this if you are to prevent yourself from becoming a casualty on the spiritual battlefield. As your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If even Christ was harassed by Satan, you can be sure that you will not escape temptation and trial as well. You cannot be holy enough to avoid being tempted by Satan. If anything, the inverse is true. And unlike our Lord, we have not only external temptations to deal with, but we wrestle internally with the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. Satan will tempt you. Your own heart will betray you. The world will entice you. Will you face those foes unarmed? The time to be in the Word of God is now. Notice that Jesus did not ask Satan to wait a moment as he consulted some pocket scroll that he had with him. These verses were in his mind and they were in his heart. You must read and internalize the Word of God if you are to wield the sword of truth with any skill when you need it. They do not drop soldiers on the battlefield and then huddle up for a little bit of training. You train and train and train so that you can be able to fight when the fight comes to you. And whether they be big or small, fleeting or ever-present, we all face temptation regularly in this life. And we are called to fight against sin and to pursue godliness at every step. There is no rest from this warfare. It is either press forward or be pushed back. We must treat sin as our murderer, as John Owen said, and kill it before it kills you. We must take this seriously. But we need not be dismayed by the strength and the cunning of our enemy. Thanks to Christ, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Satan has been defeated at the cross And though he might still attempt and will attempt to wound you with his fiery darts, he can no longer deal you a death blow. You are safe in Christ. Moreover, in Christ, we have the armor of God so that we may be able to stand in the evil day. So what do we see from our passage? Well, I leave you with this. 
Our lesson is simple. Take up your sword and prepare to do battle with the enemy of your soul, knowing that Christ is for you, beside you, and in you until the end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Once again, we thank you that this has been recorded for us, that your word has been preserved for us. Help us to see clearly, Lord, that this is not merely for our intellectual pursuits, that we might know more about who you are, though that is certainly valuable and worthwhile. We see also here that in Scripture we have your truth, which when rightly handled is a, is a weapon to guard against error and fight back anything that would draw us away from love and faith and obedience to you. So I pray, Lord, that you would give in each of us a, a passionate eagerness to know your word, to study it, to memorize it. And Lord, prepare us for war and teach us to fight that with the armor of God which you provide, that we would stand in the evil day and against all things remain standing. Pray this in your name. Amen.